very energetic so I, today. I, I get excited sometimes. Yeah. Can't help it. Got a little red in the face too doing that. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't take much, does it? <laughs> Air drums for four seconds equals Jeremy's so winded and red faced <laughs> and sweating. Oh, that'd be me too right now. Oh, I need to get back into the cardio, John. Yeah. That's something I'm really bad at. I'm I'm if I'm sleep if I get enough sleep during the week, I'm pretty good at getting in lifting weights, but that's I, the that's that uh vicious cycle, isn't it? Because you don't get enough sleep probably because you're not you're not active enough because if you're active <laughs> enough you'd be tired and go to sleep. Yep. <clears throat> so you just have to find some way to break that cycle. You do. It's just something that uh something I got to work on. But yeah, it's like if you don't work out, then you can't sleep very well. Yeah. <laughs> if you can't sleep well, I do I do not go to the gym if I haven't slept well. I mean, I'll get sick. And yeah. plus it'll just be a terrible workout. I'll have a headache the whole time and feel like crap and I just I won't do that to myself. <clears throat> I had a, oh, this is not topical, I don't know why I'm getting to this, but I had a, my first, uh, in a long time that I can remember, major sugar crash. I, I hadn't slept very well, and so I ate a bunch of sugar to get me going through, through the next couple hours, and then after that couple hours, I passed out. <laughs> I was gone. Um, it was, that, was, that, was, that was a major uh, sugar crash. When was this? No, this is a, last week sometime. Wow. I messed up my sleep cycle. I stayed up late for some reason or couldn't sleep. And then I think I tried to sleep in or something to try to make up for it. But all that did was shift everything and I ended up having to make up time. And I don't remember, but it's just one of those things where once you mess it up, it's tough to get it back into, into sync. Yeah. Well, yeah. To you, like you were saying, there has been a lot. I feel like there's been all kinds of stuff, all kinds of news. Um, yeah. I've also been, I thought I had some notes, but I've, I've been, um, kind of found a, a nice use case to get uh, familiar with Cumulus CI. Yeah. And so I've spent an inordinate amount of time trying to wrangle a single org, like a demo org that mm-hmm. we have. And man, there are challenges. Not really Cumulus's, you know, responsibility or fault. It Again, it mainly just goes back to the whole metadata system and yeah. Not only just the inherent design of it that presents challenges, but just all the, you know, basically bugs, like stuff that just doesn't work the way it should, or is just completely broken in some cases. That's been a big, big challenge. Um, and just the whole packaging thing. Um, you know, Cumulus CI does about an am- as amazing job as it probably could do, but it's just, you know, again, there's just inherent kind of design and architecture aspects of of the packaging system that just make it difficult. Yeah. Yeah, the um, packaging system that Salesforce provides is pretty difficult. It's just not fun to work with. No. It's not it's not even clear exactly what you can and can't do because there's things you can technically do in a package, but once you go into the realm of managed packages, there are things you can't do. And then there's things you can do in a managed package unless you want it certified. And then there's things that Salesforce say, that's a no-no, don't do that. Uh, during security review. So it's it's just not this very clear path of knowing what it is you can and can't do or what you can or can't build and it's it's a very confusing story. And it I don't feel like it has to be. I think that I think it should be better. It yeah. could be better. Um and then um so so you know after it really took me like a couple of weeks, but I finally got a set of metadata that I could get de- to deploy, actually deploy to a scratch org. 
Mm-hmm. And so that's good. And then I started working on the the data piece. So I also want to be able to as a to capture into basically like the, uh, the you know the repo for this org because mm-hmm. that's the thing. It's like getting it, getting this org. So this is an org. It's, it's a it's one of our demo orgs, right? Not under version control. It's just. I won't say haphazardly maintained, but in some cases it kind of is because a lot of different people use it and they'll kind of add things they need to it and just, you know, works. I mean, okay, but it's just, there's not definitely an opportunity there to uh, step up our game in terms of discipline and also to get some benefits out of that. Like, um, you know, instead of just people borrowing the demo org, I'm going to do this. And then, you know, next thing, next thing you know, when you use it, like people have changed page layouts or screwed something up or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of that, just, you know, being able to like, you know, say, uh, push some button just to spin up the, uh, their new copy of this demo org. So you have the kind of the master demo org that that's where that's where people would go to like um, to improve and work on the demo org. Mm-hmm. And it's something that you know, whatever they do there, that will ultimately get pushed out to other people's demo orgs when they spin up a new one. To, to, you know, like an inst- it's almost like a, you know you spin up an instance of it if you're going to give up a demo to a particular client or something like that, right? right. So you spin up an instance, um, it installs all the packages that are required, all the metadata, and then put dumps in all like a bunch of seed data mm-hmm. so that it's all ready to go. You can just say, Scott, like what do we know? Let's, I don't know what is even in there, but let's say there's like a you know you want a bunch of counts and contacts and opportunities with stages and stage history and all this, all that kind of stuff, like. It just loads all that stuff in, and it's ready to go. And you, we could even do something like, you know, put placeholders in the metadata, to, like maybe for like a client's name or a prospect name or something like that, just so it kind of yeah. customizes it as it as it spins it up. Right. Um, but then once you give that demo, like you're done with it, and that scratch order just expires and, you know, goes away. Right. Um, so yeah, you know, ideas to get this thing. Um, actually another big challenge and I didn't mean to talk about this right out, right out of the gate but I guess might as well yeah. uh, we can get to news and other stuff later but <clears throat> this is a demo org that so partners have the ability to create um, demo orgs, trial orgs mm-hmm. um, and even like you know dev orgs and different things that have you know higher limits and everything and so this this demo org was spun up as a I guess like a a demo org type and they have every feature under the sun enabled. That's just what you get with a demo org. Mm-hmm. It's got everything. <clears throat> yep. And that also creates past and present, all kinds of metadata and deployment problems. Right. Because I mean, when you pull the metadata down, you're like, Oh wow, there are, you know, 72 different settings files because every setting under the sun. And so part of it for me was just really trying to pick out okay what is actually being used what because i couldn't get anything to deploy it was just there's too many issues in fact settings files have all kinds of issues um, i'll give you an example let's say you have metadata that includes like a community is that what they call them no it's an experience experience an yeah. experience site or whatever it is um so and you want to you know you've got that under source control because uh we're doing source driven development right mm-hmm. um when you deploy that to a scratch org, there's there's two things that are critical, right? One is, you know, the the metadata for the experience itself. So that's going to be what's what do they call it in the metadata communities or the site? A, there's a site, but there's mm-hmm. also a, oh, a the network, network, right? Yeah. So there's all these different things, but also um, 
you have to have the settings file that it actually um, the the communities or experience settings file that enables that enable settings. Because mm-hmm. yeah. by default, it's not it's not enabled. Are you talking about the bundle, the experience bundle? No, no, no. Okay. There's okay. You know what I'm talking about with the, the settings metadata. So there's like there's lead All settings. The stuff there's you, community yeah. settings. Like yeah. it's basically stuff that's under setup, right? Right. But if you know when you if you're in a, a vanilla org and you want to create a, a new experience, the first thing you have to do is when you go into setup and experience or whatever it is, you have to enable experiences, right? And then you can actually create an experience site, right? Okay. So the the experience settings file is what holds that setting on whether or not settings are even enabled. So you have to include that experience settings in your metadata with in order to get uh, experiences enabled. Well, what I found out, and so I, which, I mean, someone correct me if I'm doing something wrong here, but <clears throat> you, if you are deploying, let's say you, you know, again, source-driven development, and we've got we're doing scratch orgs and all the right things. When you deploy um, an org to or like a you know a repo to a to a new scratch org that includes an experience you cannot in 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 the in one deployment you cannot send an an experience uh, uh, setting that in, enables the experience and the experience itself you actually have to do a deployment first that enables experiences and then you in a separate deployment it has to be a separate deployment you can actually deploy the experience itself so tell me how that fits into the this model yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. <laughs> and again, maybe I'm maybe I'm doing something wrong. So someone let me know if I am. But there's yeah. just and there's honestly, John, there's a thousand things like that that make this not workable. Yeah, I mean, no, whole- it is. It is. No, I take that back. It probably is workable, but not the way it's supposed to work. I mean, people have again when you you know read through the good days or Slack or these other things. I mean, I mean, there's there's a lot of people that have come up with some really clever you know engineering hacks to get around all this kind of stuff, but it just sucks and. And you know, another thing is like, um, so, so I'll back up. I, cause I think of what I, was, what, I was, what I was saying earlier was that I, I did get to the point where I figured out like which features are needed and I just left everything else disabled because again, the features come along with all kinds of other crap that makes deployment difficult. So you really, you want to whittle it down to like just the features you need, just the settings you need, all that kind of stuff. So I did that. <laughs> and I got into a place where, okay, I've got metadata that I can actually deploy now. Mm-hmm. Um, then I was, then I wanted to work on the data. So I want to use the, you know, Cumulus CI has this data set feature where you can say, Hey, just, you know, pull all the data down from this org. Mm-hmm. And so what it does is it, a few things it it creates a, like a schema file, which kind of describes the, what the way that data has to be loaded into another org. So it does things in the right order. Right. Um, it kind of identifies the relationships. Um, it knows when, like I say, one thing that's always challenging, this type of thing, like is accounts, because accounts have parent accounts. Mm-hmm. You can't, when you, if, when you load accounts, you can't, if you're, if you none of the accounts, the parent. you can't set the parent, right. you have to come back. So it knows that kind of stuff. Um, so it creates that mappings file for you. And then it creates a giant, just .sql file, which has a you know create table statements and then a bunch of insert statements because what it does is when you go to deploy this data set that you've created to a to an org somewhere it actually creates a i think it uses sqlite mm. so it, it creates a sqlite database it's just for temporary purposes right. <clears throat> and then it runs that sql file against in that sqlite database 
And then it starts doing your migration because what it does as it's doing things like, like say, loading accounts, it loads the accounts, but then it, it takes all the resulting account IDs and, and puts them back into a SQLite, like a mapping table of like old IDs to new IDs, that kind of thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's pretty clever. Um, but I've hit all, I can't remember where I was going to go with that, but I've, yeah, I'm, I'm in the process right now of trying to get that to work because there's all kinds of things that really aren't Cumulus CI's fault. It's just like, I'll give an example. Um, there was, there's a custom object that's like a settings object, I think for some package that's, uh-huh. that's installed. And there's two records that were in the source org. Um, and there's a field on this object called default. Uh-huh. And for one of the records, it's true. And for the one of the records, it's false. Well, I noticed, so, so, so when Cumulus CI loads those in, they, one of them fails. One of those records fails. It loads the one, and, and the, I looked in the order. It's, it, you know, there's two insert statements. Mm-hmm. The one that, that where the default is false loads first. And then the okay. one that defaults true loads first. That second one fails. And the message is you can't have two records. You can't have more than one record where default is true. And I think what's happening is that package has a trigger that if you create a settings record where default is false, it automatically flips it to true. So it's taken my default false record, which is the first one that's being inserted, and immediately flipping it to true. Therefore, when this <laughs> when the second record gets inserted, mm. which is supposed to be the default true, it's erring because it's like, no, we already have a true record. So there's just all kinds of stuff like that. Again, not Cumulus CI's fault, and really not that much I can do about it. But just all these like myriad of things you deal with. Right. Um, see, I got <laughs> thought I had some notes. Um, there's other weird things. Um, what was that setup owner ID? What, um, what object has that? Custom settings. Custom settings. Mm-hmm. Hierarchy hierarchical custom settings is where I think that matters because you have the concept of the main overarching default setting. And then below that you can have other setting records that are tied to user or profile, I think, but user user specific settings. So one thing that I wish this uh, chemo CI data set feature supported was almost like an item potent data loading process, meaning that, like um, imagine, imagine it's loading accounts, right? And halfway through, you just like lose a network connection, and everything dies. It'd be nice if you could just be like, oh, well, I'm just fix my network connection and start the whole thing over. And if it was doing like upserts or something, maybe you wouldn't end up with duplicates, but it doesn't. Everything is insert. Mm. And so if something goes wrong in the middle of your data load, which is pretty likely, especially on, on complex ones, especially when you're when you're trying to get the data set just right so it is loadable. Right. Um, it'd be nice if uh, you could fix it and then just like restart that that data set load, but you can't because it's it's always like it's just it's just it's inserts. Assuming that nothing has been loaded yet. Right. And so <laughs> and so but and so this org with its with its um, metadata and package and everything takes about an hour and a half to create a scratch org and get it ready to go with metadata. And so, so I've, I've worked through, I've got the metadata close to where I needed to be. Now I'm working on this data set thing. But every time I hit a data set load issue, and then I fix it or try to fix it, I now have to spin up, now that, that org is burned because it's already halfway data loaded. Mm-hmm. And so I have to spin up a new org, scratch org, 
which takes an hour and a half. And then I can see if I fixed something or not. I can try again and get to the next problem. Yeah. So what I started doing was just, I have like a, a pool. I just like have a bunch spun up and I have a pool of these scratch orgs now <laughs> so that I don't have to wait. Well, my understanding which is, which that's is, what Salesforce does. Which is kind of an obvious solution. Well, and, and I've, I've heard people talk about this, but I know like, you know, organizations that, that have, you know, big development teams, quite a bit of engineering going on and stuff. A lot of, a lot of DevOps. Um, they have a whole, people have a, some kind of scratch org um, pool system that they've developed. Mm-hmm. That, you know, something is always making sure there's a pool of available scratch orgs that are ready to go in terms of, they probably have like already metadata deployed and they're ready for whatever. And, you know, they have pools of pools then. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess because, because then when, you know, if you're a developer and you need to, you need to start working on a feature, you don't have to wait that hour and a half process to spin up your scratch org. You just grab one from the pool, but they, but they have tooling around it so that it's not like a manual thing where people can screw up and actually grab someone else's org or whatever. It's just like, it's part of their automatic tooling. Like it goes out there and automatically grabs a, a scratch org from the pool and then, you know, marks it as not available or whatever. So oh, that's gotta be, that's a double-edged sword. Cause I, and I don't know where I heard this, but I heard that Salesforce, how they manage their scratch orgs is they have pools of, of orgs as well. So that whenever you go and initiate a create oh, for a scratch org, okay. they're pulling from their pool. Yeah. So Salesforce is managing a pool of scratch orgs. And now you have, let's say ISVs or whoever's doing these de- <laughs> development, they're creating pools. And we just all have these massive lakes of <laughs> great lakes of scratch orgs. How about that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm, let's see. But yeah, but I mean, it's, we all find ways to try to try to mitigate some of our pain. Um, Another thing I was running into just that, that slowed things down was, and it depends on the day and I think in what probably pod you're on or whatever, but um, once like the scratch org, like once the packages were installed, then I would start the, de- the just the unpackaged metadata deployment to install. But those were getting queued for like more than 10 minutes. Oh yeah. Yeah, depending on the time of day and time of year, those will queue for quite a while, quite a while. And you know, Salesforce has some. You know, there's an algorithm that if it when it looks at your deployment, if it's if it looks pretty big, I don't know how what factors it considers, but if it looks pretty big to Salesforce, they're much more likely to put you down deep in the queue because they're like, uh-huh. oh, this is a big deployment. It's not like it's some developer just waiting for an Apex class to save. So we'll queue it way down. And that yeah. was happening to me a lot. <clears throat> I, th- I think, yeah, I think you're right because because everything is a deployment in Salesforce, even someone just saving a class. So, and just another example of like <clears throat> how broken some of this metadata stuff in like is. So again, I pulled down metadata from an existing org and then go deploy it to a new org, and I get stuff like no more than ten columns may be specified in lookup phone dialogues additional fields. Oh yeah, like how was this valid metadata in an org, but it's. In one org, but it's not valid metadata in another org. Like, yeah. there's different rules. I, I just, I don't get it. Probably version changes or something might impact that, but who knows? And I got a bunch of course. I think there's some things that get grandfathered in, like what it's that way in the interface, but then it changes or something, and it just. It's, yeah, I, don't know. I know. <clears throat> I think you're right. There's a lot of that grandfathering stuff. Yeah. Um, flow just invalid version number errors. Like, oh how yeah, am I, how am I getting this? I don't yeah, know. you can't. It's yeah, flow. <laughs> The whole version thing with flow is, is kind of painful as well. And here's another problem that still exists. You put on metadata and there's freaking IDs in it. 
Mm-hmm. Why are there IDs and metadata? There's also usernames. I mean, and I don't know what the solution for this is really, but there's there's um, usernames and metadata. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, like the username. Workflows. Yeah. yeah. Workflows like, are the biggest offender like, well, of that because it'll store IDs and it'll store usernames. And usernames are the biggest issue for us. So how do people, what do people do? I mean, I'm, again, these are just engineering problems, but I mean, what, do, how do we, what are people do? What are you, you know, what kind of patterns are people? Uh, you modify using? the metadata before you deploy it. Or you... So you put you put like a placeholder or something maybe like a a lot of times it's like because it's a it's from a sandbox you just remove the sandbox moniker and then deploy it so you modify your local metadata file yeah we we had a whole process well the, in a previous life when we had a major a separate team that did release management for us we had to outline all this stuff for them we had to have all these logs and outline what needed to go we had the in, the, the the concept of uh, pre manual pre pre deploy main deployment post manual and then any kind of uh, stuff that had to happen after that. We had this whole architecture of things and it, a lot of it was things like workflows and stuff that we had to manually manage. Yeah. Let's see. Um, Cause that was uh, that environment was socks. So we, we are developers and couldn't, and, and nobody else had access to production. I would, to I would fix that stuff. I was pretty often getting error. And this is when just deploying the metadata. Error could not process MD API response. Update of role, blah, 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 blah. An, un- an unexpected error occurred. Please include this error ID if you contact support. You know, it's a gag. Yeah. And you just get, you get those kind of all the time. When you're doing, when you're working with a lot of metadata, it's just your chances of getting that goes way up. And it's like, yeah. you can't log a case every time you get something like that. I mean, you'll, not that I'm getting much work done anyway, but you probably would have given even less work done if you, <laughs> if you were always logging those. I know, I know. Yeah, um, I did. Uh, so when I well, was, you would because even no matter how much information you put into the case, they always come back to you like you just didn't give them enough information. Oh, like yeah. it's right there. No, and like read the damn case. They notes. they want to schedule a yes a Zoom or not a Zoom. What do they use? They used to use um, I don't remember the Citrix yeah, one. I've been on those calls where they yep. want they want to see it and reproduce. I'm it like, I'm like I literally gave you everything you need. No, I'm not getting I on a call. Recorded video and attached. I know, it. yeah, not enough. <laughs> not it's, enough. It's I think, you know clearly support gets. Um, incentivized. I mean, it goes back to tell me how you'll measure me. I'll tell you how I perform. They could probably get incentivized on, you know, high interaction with, I don't know, with support things. And so like, you know, they get more points if they get on a a call with you or something. Maybe. (laughs) Because those calls are not productive. No. You get, I I gave them the benefit of the doubt a couple of times. I'm just like, wow, nope, not doing this again. Yeah. Um, yeah, my last one I think took three calls, and they ended up just saying that's just that's just the way it works. And yeah. I'm like, what the? <laughs> um, yeah. So back to getting like the right set of features, it, I was really struggling with this, and so I finally th- um, someone gave me the idea. I forget who it was because I'd forgotten about it. But hey, why don't you use the org shape thing? So you can just like mm. capture the org shape of the target org. Um. Did that even work? Because I think no. But well, that's, when I, re- that's when I realized that it had every feature under the sun enabled. Because I, I did, I captured the org shape. Um, and, and then Salesforce was like, "Well, we're not touching that." No, and then but I, <laughs> so then I spun up a new scratch org with it, and yeah, it just got it's got a million things, and and so I finally abandoned that and went back to manually specifying the org shape just mm. with what features are, were needed. I think I did anyway. Um. <coughs> But one thing that, and I hope they change this. So you used to be, so with the org shape, what it does is you point it towards an org and 
when you and you cre- you do like a create org shape thing, and there's there's really two problems with it now. One is I don't think it's I don't think it like takes us a snapshot of what that what that and save somewhere. It doesn't save it anywhere. Like what that org shape is. It's just that whenever you use that org shape to spin up a new scratch org, it actually looks at that the 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 source org shape in real time. Mm-hmm. Which sucks because that's a that could be a moving target. Like there's no the, we're, again, we're back to in this case, the source of truth is an org, right? And we're not supposed to be there. We're supposed to be the source of truth is source code on disk, right? What they used to let you when you when you created an org shape, it would it would let you. There was a uh, an SFDX command to to actually download that org shape. And then, and then you would use that. It was just it would go into the what's the file that when you spin up a scratch like scratch scratch org def or yeah. whatever. But it doesn't let you download. It doesn't let you download the org shape anymore. And so really? you're stuck with whenever you spin up a new scratch org based on org shape, it looks at whatever the source org is at that point in time, and and captures its org shape just long enough to spin up your scratch org, and then it drops it. Like it doesn't let you save that to a file or anything. So there's. Um, someone pointed me to an issue someone logged asking for that to be brought back and there was pushback like they didn't want to bring that back. I so, wonder if it's only storing like top level information and it has to go back to that org to get lower level, lo- more lower level detail information. And if those drift between whatever file you have saved and what the current You don't have is, a file saved. You don't have a file no, I'm saved. I'm saying once upon a time that oh. they got rid of it because oh. maybe there was a drift between basically the top level header information stored on all that and the detail and it was just causing issues with the shape even working. I don't know. But I that org shape's it. pretty cool, but I mean, if you if you can't actually capture that org shape and c- commit it into your repo, then it's kind of not what it needs to be. It's just not the way we need it to work. Well, I, I think that org shape should be a point in time. I think your use case is, is different. I think you're trying to use org shape to try to solve this use case you have, but you have a very specific use case that just Salesforce can't solve. I mean, I feel like, well, no, I feel like any use case where you, where you just want to, it's, it's, it's that kind of an easy button to like get your scratch org def. Oh, well, let's just, it just needs to look, it just needs to be shaped like that org. So let's just grab that. I mean, any use case that involves something like that, like you really should be saving whatever that org shape definition is to your, to your file and then capturing that. And version controlling that. Yeah, in the world of Salesforce, it's different, though. You're more kind of like saying, this is what I need, not get me what's there so I can clone it. It's just, it's just the concept of cloning in Salesforce, just in terms of org environment, just isn't really a thing. Well, I guess it is with sandboxes, though. Yeah. And full sandboxes, so the technology has to be... Uh, yeah, they're, maybe they're just... I don't know. I don't know I, either. I, I keep thinking I'm... I'm rationalizing this, and then all of a sudden I think of something else that just derationalizes it. Well, I don't, and it's weird anytime you know a feature like that is removed. It's like you already had a build. People were people were using. Yeah, but it was and, always beta. It, it oh, has, org shape was. Yeah. It, oh. If it's GA now, it's it, it it's it's very recent because it was beta for the longest time. Another thing I ran into was retired features. If your org is using a retired feature, you cannot spin up a new org with that anymore. Mm-hmm. So. No more, no DevOps for you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, hmm. 
Yeah. And this uh, <laughs> other weird, like there was a, um, I guess I think this is a page layout. I started getting like, so I would, I got, I got the metadata, like where it was deploy, it would deploy. Right. And then randomly, like I'd, I'd spin up a new org and deploy it and I would get a new error that I had never gotten before. Same exact, I hadn't changed any of the source code whatsoever. Same exact thing. And it was an, it was a campaign layout and it said invalid field opportunity dot name. And my question is like, why is opportunity dot name invalid all of a sudden? That's very valid for your campaign layout. Yeah. It's just, what the hell? I have a weird issue right now with a field that's in our, in one of our packages that I can't get access to through, through querying. Hmm. And I think I have to recreate the whole scratch org. <laughs> Burn it down. And yeah. Say, I've, I've enabled I mean, every setting system. Admin has access. It's on a page layout. Um, it's, it's public sharing model. I mean, I've went through the entire list of all sharing and security things to get access to this field. And even the, the Salesforce tooling that says, is this field accessible? You know, you can call describe is accessible. You can look at the record and see what fields are accessible. It's just, it says true. But yeah. whenever I query it and try to access it in testing, in my unit tests, um, it's it's not it doesn't come back. Yeah, and I don't know what happened to it. What level of corruption happened to make that <laughs> so, one field, right. a very critical lookup field, just not available? Yeah. Log a case, John. Oh God, no! <laughs> that's, that's what, You're going to see my time logging for the week. It's going to be like three days of logging cases. Yep, <laughs> and like getting on calls with support. You <laughs> yeah. know? Um, but yeah, no, I mean, again, like overall, I mean, Cumulus CI is pretty slick. Um, it just, it solves a lot of problems, especially if you're, um, I mean, really, if you're, even if you're just dealing with like, you've got just a corporate org, but also a lot of the, it supports like a lot of the workflows, really all the workflows, I think around like package development, package management, stuff like that. I mean, just what it does like in this kind of what I've been doing. So I've got. I've got an org that's got a bunch of a bunch of packages installed in it, and it just figures out like all the dependencies and installs all the dependencies in the right order, and like manages all that crap, and then automatically like once that's all done, deploys the metadata, and then if you have data sets, it does those. It's just like it's got these workflows that do a lot of that crap for you. It's pretty nice. Um, yeah. And nice. then i I had a I never got Mateco running because I could not get my like the, I don't know if it was the UI wasn't working or what, but I could not um, get my GitHub organization authorized. It's just, I don't know. I, hmm. I gave up. Um, I need to come back to that to, to see if I can get that fixed. But that um, yeah, was, I don't I worked meta deploy and I was able to get my Git enabled on it. I'm pretty sure. So it wasn't that difficult. I don't remember. I, did, I think I did have to like generate some kind of key or something and all this stuff. Yeah, but. so I did all that setup stuff, and this was I think like literally the last thing, and oh. it, it just I could not get. There's you have to go into um, so Mateco is built on uh, Django, and Django comes to kind of like it, one of the things it's known for is if you define your data models and everything right, it gives you just like an automatic admin face uh, interface. Oh. Is that an art door? Yes. Oh, hang on. Did you put uh, a marker down? No, I need to. That's a good point. Okay. Um, but yeah, I got everything else set up. I mean, all the keys and all that crap. It just, but anyway, it's, there's one thing you have to do where you use this, you know, Django's just kind of like admin interface thing to go and set up your GitHub organization. You have to auth, you know, get it authorized. And that was just not working. I, I don't know. I have no idea. 
There were some people that I think were trying to help me out with it, but I, I had to, I don't know. I think that's when Thanksgiving hit and I was out at that point. Yeah. Well, you want to get to, do you have anything uh, on your uh, docket? Uh, a lot of it's the new stuff that we're talking about. I did, I did want to kind of talk about, or at least mention the, the new UI. So JetBrains IDE has a new UI that's out. Um, what is it called? New UI. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go into to appear, your appearance settings and enable it, but uh, it essentially gives you the uh, the fleet UI, which is that kind of more oh. compact Visual Studio Code like layout. But it's still full IntelliJ. Still full IntelliJ. Okay. It's just you got a more, much more compact UI, and there's an update to the to the icons and everything, which is nice. Hmm. Um, the the drawback is that it's more compact. So whereas before you had toolbars with names so you would see your i don't know execute anonymous tab or your illuminate cloud tab all within the outskirts of your interface it's mm. now represented by an icon mm. which to me i got used to but i can see how it being um difficult for someone who's just starting out and seeing these icons if you switch to this is it easy to switch back yeah it's okay. just a setting it's just a setting you click and you have to restart the the ide so it's not it's not <clears throat> intrusive in any way it just kind of flips the ui on it but i've been using it and i've been enjoying it so I, I like the more compact look and everything, so a little less distracting. Uh, Illuminated Cloud does, I think, need to update some of its icons because some of its icons share some of the regular icons. So, like, the terminal icon and the execute anonymous icon are the same. So mm-hmm. you have to hover to get your text so that you can see which one you're clicking on. Yeah. <clears throat> but, I mean, those are minor things. But, yeah, it was a pleasant experience. I've been using it. I need to check that out. I mean, I'm... I don't know. I'm I get stuck in my way, so I'm guessing I probably won't leave it on that. But <laughs> it is it's it's really interesting the strategy they have though with fleet because mm-hmm. I feel like they had to have an answer to um, VS Code. Yeah, and that's what I get. It, I mean, it kind of caught them mid technology build on two different teams because kind of like the way Aura came out and then web components became a thing. Um, fleet is using I forgot what it was, but it's using a, a third-party framework for the UI, and then uh, IntelliJ has their own framework that they've built, okay. and it's not using that new framework, that mm-hmm. new UI framework. So yeah. I don't know if at some point they'll switch it over to that, but right now it's using this this other framework or, for the UI. And, I mean, one thing they have to be careful about is that, you know, IntelliJ has this huge ecosystem of third-party plugins and add-ons and stuff, and they, you know, you can't break those. Right. But I think I, one thing that I think is really caused VS code to really explode in popularity is the way that it does works with plugins. So like a typical, you know, like solution or like, I don't know, solution set or technology you're working with. Like there's only just like a handful of plugins that, and usually that usually VS code will prompt you. Oh, do you want to install that? Okay. Yeah, sure. Install, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the development model for developing these plugins, it's, you know, they've, I think it was Microsoft that invented this, invented the, um, it's what is it? This is a language server API, which is a pretty simple API for implementing you know, like plugins for it. Whereas IntelliJ, their you know framework, the the platform API is what they call it. I think for developing plugins is is big and really complex and very poorly documented in mm-hmm. lots of cases, no documentation. Scott Wells can tell you all about this. I'm sure. 
Um, so while I think plugins on IntelliJ are probably, let's I'm just make a number up, twice as powerful in terms of the things they can do than like a VS Code plugin would be, mm-hmm. it's 10 times more difficult to build an IntelliJ plugin than it is a VS Code plugin. And that's a problem. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, IntelliJ just has its legacy on, a, on its sleeve right now that it has to wear. And Visual Studio Code doesn't, at least not yet. Yep. I mean, it's easy when you're the new dog to to have this very simple UI, but when you've had decades of lessons learned built into your platform, it's it's tough to keep that simple. Yep. But uh, your yeah, Salesforce no. can tell you something about that too. <laughs> yeah, that's the problem with technology. Yeah, it's things become like a legacy very quickly. I mean, I, I kind of, in some ways, I kind of enjoy, or not enjoy, uh, agree with kind of Apple's longstanding approach, which is just, you know, at least historically. And now it, the OS differences are so minor, it's not even an issue. But, you know, they never strived for backwards compatibility. They would like, here's an emulator. <laughs> you know? If, you, if you're lucky, yeah, yeah. Here's an emulator. Yeah. I will say, I, I feel like Apple has a history of executing really well on emulators, though. Yeah. And that probably eased that whole concern, but it allowed them to kind of move forward and keep things a little bit more streamlined and add new features and and essentially say, we're moving forward. You know, you guys got to come with us or, yeah. you know, stay in the emulator. I mean, you can have a 10-year-old PC that runs Windows 11. Yeah. But I don't think you can get away with that on a Mac. Like, you're not going to run the latest OS on a 10-year-old Mac. Probably not. Yeah, they just, they don't really care. Their answer is, well, just buy a new Mac. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> which would, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to that approach, but I think I, I like the idea of just moving forward. I like the idea of saying, you know what, this is something we all ha- in the industry have to understand and agree with in terms of software that it, it's not this one time thing that you get to use for forever. You have to keep advancing it and moving it forward. It's, it's not, maybe it's not an investment. Maybe it's a, a cost of business, you know, type perspective. If that makes sense, it's not a cost of business. It's a what? Uh, I'm saying it's not an investment. It's a it's a cost of doing business. Okay, meaning you're not investing it and watching it mature and and gain ROI because it's it's going to be a moving target. Things are going to change. It's linked to things, hardware and other software that's going to change, and you have to maintain that. Mm-hmm. That's not a that's not a what do they call it? A capital expense. Is that the right word? I guess. Where you can die, you can kind of invest in, invest in something and watch it gain ROI and kind of, yeah, over years or whatever. Yeah. Mm. I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, we in in our in our worlds of developing software, especially as a consultant, we build this thing and it it exists and it's there. And when it comes to newer technology coming out, it's like, well, I don't want to spend that money again. It's like, well, this is a continued investment. This is maintenance. This is this is part of having software and technology as, as a main part of your business. Oh, I know. Just, oh, people don't want to acknowledge that though, that that's the reality yeah. of any kind of it and all this like digital transformation stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure people thought they were <clears throat> um, doing all the right things when they invested a bunch in all their, you know, visual force apps and customizations for their org. And then, you know, next thing you know, they're telling you that's, um, that's now legacy. And here we have a completely different path forward. That's yeah. that's tough. Just picking on Salesforce, but it happens, you know. 
Yeah, I mean, we can we can get mad at Salesforce for saying, "Hey, screw you know, Vision Force is legacy, and here's Lightning, and or and then oh, that's Aura Lightning, and now here's Lightning Lightning." You yeah. know, but at the same time, you know, we we scream and holler about Salesforce innovating and and giving us something new and something better to work with. Well, we have to accept that in doing so, we're going to have to rework and rebuild and spend more money to to be on that platform. Yeah, yeah. just reality, man. It's like you know, it sucks. You know. Anyone who owns a home probably knows this, but you know, you, you could buy a brand new home mm-hmm. and then you might get 10 years before. So, I mean, you want to keep up. You're going to need to remodel that kitchen mm-hmm. because what was, what looked good at the time, 10 years later looks dated. And then you got to remodel the master bathroom. And then, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, <laughs> you've been through all this. Yeah. <laughs> I'll add one to that. You you made a decision you thought was the right decision at the time, and then you live with it for a while, and you're like, oh, I really want to change this. That's worse. That's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My floor is being that. Mm. Don't like your floor? Uh, I've had some issues with it, and I think the installation was bad. Mm. So I've got other issues related to it. So I, I'm at the point where I just I think I'm going to have to invest and redo all the Ugh. flooring in the house. Oh, my gosh. That was only, what, a couple of years ago? Yeah. Goodness gracious. Anyway. All right. Well, so Salesforce uh, released quarterly results since we talked last. Did they now? <sighs> I'm sure it was a rounding success. I mean. They beat, they beat the margins. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, you know, they did, I think, beat. I mean, they beat on, like, earnings of course um, they can. That's easy to do when you have this pull of gap. <clears throat> I guess. It's just like scratch work. You just pull it up and grab it when you need it. But the the thing they got, so, you know, uh, but, you know, Wall Street was not happy. Um, and not because of performance, because, because of future guidance. Future guidance was one thing. Um, also, just revenue growth. So revenue growth is down to 14%. And this is a company that, you know, we're used to them growing at 25%. And then it was like, you know, edging down towards 20%. But they were starting to become profitable, you know, so, okay. Because the thing is, like, when you buy stock, you're buying, you know, you're you know buying access to, like, you know, a future revenue and cash flow streams or whatever. Um, but what's priced into that is, like, where every, what everyone thinks this company's going to be worth. That's what you're, that's what you're paying for. Mm-hmm. And the question is, like, Okay, what does their trajectory look like to get there? Um, and if you're not going to grow as fast, then well, we need you to start having. We need to start, we need to start seeing more profit. Then it, you can get away with you know no very little profit if you're on like just a growth tear, which you know Salesforce you know, most of its life has been on. You know, it's mm-hmm. Salesforce has almost always grown to like twenty five percent a year, and that's just you know what? How big are they now? Fit, you know, I don't even know. Whatever the revenue is, I mean, you can't you can't keep growing at twenty five percent every year. Didn't you post I mean, a chart on that? Um, I don't know if it was growth. No, it's not. It's just their revenue, seven billion. But you know, it was. I really started noticing this. I think it's been over a year, but the, you know, I really started driving this home at the most recent investor day, which was at the uh, last Dreamforce. You know, their their push or their focus on. Just gross profit. 
really kind of bending that curve. And their goal is by 2026 to be at 25% gross margin. Right now, they're, I think they're um, – actually, they just hit a record high of 22.7%. Mm. But, the, but their revenue growth is dropping faster than their margins increasing. I think, it's, I think it's a problem. So Wall Street not happy with that. And then also Wall Street not happy with Brett Taylor, I'm sure, leaving. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been rough on Salesforce's stock price. It's been a rough year, but it's been rough recently. Yeah, we don't have a lot of information about the the kind of mass exodus of top level execs at Salesforce, but there's there's quite a quite a few people leaving for different reasons. It seems it's interesting. You know, Sales Cloud still grows at pretty good clip. I think it was eighteen percent or seventeen percent. Service Cloud was I think eighteen percent. Um, one thing that stuck out to me though, Tableau eight percent. Hmm. So Tableau growth not really carrying its weight there. That's something to keep an eye on. Um, and this, this is another thing. I'm not sure how well these different metrics are, but one uh, billings, right? Which is a measure of uh, billings. Let me think about this billings. Uh, it, yeah, it's just really of I guess uh, what is this? a measure of new business transaction transacted grew only five percent year over year, which is a record low. I'm not sure how billings is. I guess. Billing would billings be like stuff you've invoiced but not haven't necessarily been paid on? I really don't. I don't understand that. But the other thing that um, Salesforce did, I think that Wall Street didn't like, was this is the first time ever in a third quarter report that they declined to give their forecast for the next fiscal year. So we're, we only have one more quarter in this fiscal year. Mm-hmm. And this is the user point that they give the full next fiscal year guidance. And they just said, we're not going to do that this time. Hmm. Which is, you know, I mean, not unusual, especially in this kind of, everything's really chaotic and volatile, just global markets, currency exchanges are all weird and everything. Yeah. Um, but a lot of other companies are still giving their their full year guidance at this point. So oh, not sure, not sure what to make of that. I did um I listened to some of the conference call because <clears throat> I wanted to hear what Benioff had to say about Brett. So if you want, we can play that. Just yeah. stop it if it gets boring. I just wanted to add a speculation on okay. maybe one possible reason in that they're trying to figure out if they're going to transition from growth to profit. I wonder if they're they're at a decision point at this point. I mean they well, they if you listen to what they say, they definitely are. I mean, they won't they won't say they're that's not what focused. they'll say now because of, because of the down in revenue. But they, I think they want to know if if there's any other major acquisitions they can make possibly to continue the growth, or like maybe they have some acquisitions in the works and they're trying to figure out how solid those are for next year to to, to before they wholeheartedly say we're in growth mode or we're in profit mode. There's there's two things I think make acquisitions difficult for them right now. One is that stock. Their stock price, yeah, it's a big one. And the other is just interest rates. I mean, Salesforce definitely rode the zero interest rate thing for a long, 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 long time. And True, we don't have that anymore. So, yeah, it makes everything more expensive. All right, okay. Yeah. Now I'll, I'll play this, and we can stop it or whatever if it gets boring. Now, before I end. I have to say something, and it's something that I did not want to say ever, and I'm extremely uh, 
sad to tell you that uh, Brett Taylor is going to be leaving the company. You know, Brett and I are like uh, brothers. I love him very deeply. Uh, he's an incredible person. And um, one of the jo great joys of my, uh, of my company has been having him here. And I'll tell you, uh, for me, this has been a feeling uh, you know, of tremendous loss. I'm experiencing that right now. You can probably hear it in my voice. You know, it makes me think of all the great people that we have actually lost in the company over the time as well, so many great leaders of our industry, but especially now with Brett. This is just really hard for me, and I'm extremely sad to see him go. Um, I know he, you know, has created two great companies. I know he wants to go create a third great company, and you can't keep a wild tiger in a cage. <laughs> and we got to let him be free and let him go, and I understand. Um, but I don't like it. And uh, Brett, you know that you're always going to be our brother. You know that you, we love you very uh, deeply. Um, that you have a home here. We're going to we're going to try to get you back somehow. So you know, don't think that you're going to somehow get out of this alive because you're not. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. That was a good line. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if he had thought about that when I had. I think time. he's genuine when he says this. I know. I, I think yeah. he's genuine. But I would. Just, I wonder if he had prepared that little joke there. Yeah. And. Um, uh, you know, you're always going to be part of our Ohana, and um, you know we are really upset about this, and um, it's going to be a difficult moment for us. But uh, I know that uh, you're going to be with us through the end of the year, and I know you're going to continue to work with us even after this point. But um, Brett, we love you, and um, we're so sorry uh, to see uh, you leave the company at the end of this year. Yeah, thank you, Mark. Um, it's hard to follow that. Do you want to hear? Brett's response. Yeah, we have to. Okay. I'm uh, invested. Trying to keep my composure as well. Oh, um, they should just. I hope they they gave need each to other. hug it out. Oh, they do. Yeah. yeah. I just want to start, Mark, by just expressing how deeply grateful I am to you, um, and just as importantly, the entire Salesforce team. Uh, for the past six plus years, I just couldn't have imagined it when I joined the company. Um, I could not be more proud of the trust, innovation, and customer success we've delivered in my time here, um, particularly over the past few years. Uh, we, I think this amazing community has helped every organization in the world remain connected to their customers amidst a public health crisis, economic turmoil, this global pandemic. It's just incredible, and I'm incredibly grateful. And Mark, uh, you personally, you've been my mentor long before I joined this company. And in the past six years, your relationship has definitely become the most significant in my professional career. Uh, I would not be the leader I am today without you, and I cannot thank you enough for our friendship and our partnership. The past few years have been tumultuous for all of us, uh, and I've recently been reflecting on what's been truly important to me. And while there is absolutely no easy time for a transition like this, I really do feel that now is the right time for me to return to my entrepreneurial roots, particularly given the technology landscape and the economy going through such tectonic shifts. Salesforce has never been stronger, and I've never been more confident in the future of the company. And uh, as Mark said, I will remain as co-CEO through the end of the fiscal year, not only to ensure smooth transition, but most importantly to ensure that we have a strong close to the quarter and a strong close to the fiscal year. And as Mark said, even after this transition, I will always, always be a part of this company and always be a part of this community. Hmm. Those were prepared remarks. He's going to go build a new <clears throat> social media platform. You think so? Well, yeah, the, the Slack CEO is also leaving. I think they're coming together. They're going to do a new social media. Well, I, yeah, I wonder if how much collusion there is there between all these, yeah, all these uh, executives that are leaving. I mean, let's see who it's. Um, it's Brett, 
It's the Tableau CEO, the Slack CEO, uh, Tableau CTO, and two other executive, two other senior executives from Slack have all. Um, who's Gavin Patterson? Gavin Patterson, Salesforce Chief Technology Officer, to leave in 2023. Stephen Tam, mm-hmm. like OG CTO, just announced on Twitter a couple of days ago that he's. Yeah, and it sounded not time it for predictions sudden. yet, but that's my prediction. It sounded sudden. He was like, "I don't even know what I'm doing yet." I'm so I, I don't know, man. Yeah, I mean, sometimes this just happens. It's a natural cycle, okay. and it's you know you, you don't necessarily this you shouldn't make more of it than what it is. But also, sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. You know, I, yeah. yeah, I don't know. But, I mean, I've been part of organizations where a lot of people left, and I went with them. It's not. Yeah, it's not it's, unheard of. It's yeah, it happens. Yep. Um, well, while we're doing clips, I have another one where Benioff talks about how we're all factory workers. I, well, before you say that, I just want to say I think Benioff did it better, and I think Benioff was ex- very sincere about his words. Oh, I, yeah, I, I agree. Brett seemed a little bit more prepared in, you know, reading off a script than Benioff did. I mean, but you know, before we move on from this, though. What, what's your analysis of like why? I know it's just speculation, but like, you know, Brett was made co-CEO a year ago and clearly he was, you know, Benioff's almost 60. I mean, Brett was going to take over the reins. Like what? I think that Salesforce is too big of a ship to move the way he wants to move okay. it. I think he wants to innovate and and do some things that just Salesforce can't can't handle. Hmm. Not as a platform, but as an organization. And you don't think that he he didn't realize that a year ago? I think it was hopeful a year ago. Okay. Um, I think I think a couple things happened. One, he had to stay on because of the golden parachute contract they stick you in when you get acquired. Mm. And two, after that, it's like, well, we really want you to stay. We want to make you this position because because he was probably expressing what he wanted, the control he wanted, the ability to 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 have some impact. And I think just Salesforce as an organization is just too big for him to have the type of impact he wants to have. That's my speculation. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's uh, I think a pretty common sentiment. The same thing with um the, the was it the Slack CEO is that Stuart Butter Butterfield Butterfield I think that's the Slack but you know I mean he yes, uh, yes I, I think he also just completed his earnout period I think that's normal they that yeah. contracts up and they they did what they had to do to you know perfect their their um award from the from the acquisition or whatever and then they they move on you know mm-hmm. they've got more money than God at that point and. Um, they want to def- go find their next toy to play mm-hmm. with. Yeah. So, and I don't know. That's why I'm just like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of activity right now that's high profile, but could be just normal stuff. I, I will say, I don't think the Brett thing is necessarily normal because this was not, th- this was clearly not the plan mm-hmm. when you make someone co-CEO. And the thing for Salesforce, that's the second time this has happened. So right. I'm sure, I'm sure that makes it sting a little bit more for Benioff. Because I think he's like, damn, I'm trying to like get one foot out the door here, people. Like I need to, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that being frustrating. Yeah. But it's his baby. So he has to make sure that it's probably taken care of before he starts that, that exit. Well, it's, it's, it's his baby that so much of his, so much of his uh, net worth is in. That's true. Yeah. I mean. So he's got to have someone he trusts to. Yeah, because I mean, yeah, it. I mean, a ton of his wealth is—I'm sure a vast majority of it is yeah. Salesforce stock. Yeah. So, although I heard, I heard he's got a very low percentage these days of ownership, I think of the total company. Yeah, yeah it's probably. I mean, it, 
I think back in the day it was like, was it 2% or something like that? A pretty small amount, but I could be making that. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah. I think I was just reading somewhere and it talked about how, how much he had left. I thought yeah. that was, I thought it seemed pretty low to me when I read it, but honestly, when you're worth billions, 1%, 2% yeah. is. <laughs> okay. Do you want to hear this factory workers thing? Yeah, let's okay. go for it. This, uh, the sea of Honeywell Darius and share a common uh, board member, Robin Washington. And uh, he's, uh, you know, made a, a, a plea for me for many years that um, he has factory workers and those factory workers still every single day during the pandemic were in the factory. And that it's a very critical part of how he runs his business. And when I have advocated for um, new kinds of work and uh, folks having the flexibility in their working environment to remember his factory workers, and I think he's absolutely right and um, 100% correct. Well, I would also say we have factory workers. Now, today, we are the factory workers. The work that we're doing is required here in our factory. And what? It's, it's interesting, the, the change of the tune here. Um, you know, Salesforce is very proud of its – you can work from anywhere after the pandemic hit and that we're never – you know. Benny has been on public record many times that we're, we're never going back. And now, I, let me let me I, actually rewind a little bit. Now we're fact. How far did that go back? Now, now we're factory workers, and we have to work. One hundred percent correct. Well, I would also say we have factory workers. Now today we are the factory workers. The work that we're doing is required here. You have to do the work here. So, I think I get it. I feel like that's a cha- that's a change in message, though. It, uh, it's a change in message that's been happening for a little over a year now. I think and not at is, Salesforce, though. Yes. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. I, Salesforce has been trying to get people back into the office for about a year now, and they haven't been able to. And a lot of these tech companies have not been able to. Um, even even Twitter. I mean, they were spending what like four hundred million a year or something on food service that wasn't getting eaten because no one was in the office. I know people were complaining that he that. What wasn't Elon cut it, but that was the reason that no one was at the office. Yeah. And I think there, and I, I, even, I mentioned this, this whole quiet quitting thing. I don't think they were getting the productivity out of people that they yeah, of needed course not. Right. with, yeah. with the working from home thing. And there wasn't as much collaboration. There wasn't enough kind of synergy, if you will, uh, <laughs> with, uh, with people being remote. And that's, that's difficult for any company that has a primarily remote workforce. It's tough to, to have those kind of hall room or water cooler conversations that lead to things um, because you're in such, such a silo. Yeah. And I get it for such a big company like Salesforce, that's gotta be tough. And how do you manage that? And how do you make sure people are, are being noticed at getting what they need or, or all those kind of things? Yeah. That's tough. I just, I think the message now is, but I, I think the analogy with factory workers is just blatantly erroneous. It's just, there's, there's no correlation. <laughs> I don't think it's um hang on. I don't I don't I don't like the metaphor. I I just think, I mean I think it's a, a little bit of a negative well, it is. metaphor. I don't I mean, if, but I don't think he means it that way. I just think it's a bad choice of metaphor for him to use. I think he's he's trying to acknowledge that the messaging is not is not applicable to everyone, obviously. And that and then then he's trying to also, at the same time, saying, well, we need to also get back to work. I know we've been saying that you can remote work everywhere, but really we've kind of learned that it's not really good that way. 
And I, th- I think the metaphor only applies to people who are like working on the data center in the data center. I mean, because like you and I, the work we do, I mean, we don't have to go to where the big machinery is that we're operating. Right. So we're not really that that metaphor just doesn't doesn't hold water. Well, I mean, that, that's a difference in access to the hardware and, and things like that. But the team that you work with would be nice to be together in the same room. That's and that's a <clears throat> I agree. It's a separate argument. It just it's I feel like that's separate from the f- the factory worker metaphor. That's though. why it's a bad yeah. metaphor, yeah. because th- th- there's well, no physicality that has to be there. But there is a a collaboration that that could exist if we were all in the same room. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see if he clarifies here. In our factory. And you know where that factory is very well, Mark. You know where we are. And um, we have different factories around the world that we call our towers and our hubs and core offices. But I think we also realize, and I think (laughs) that even Darius would agree with me, that the percentage of folks who are working remotely is going to be higher. So before the pandemic, the percentage of remote workers for Salesforce was approximately 20%. For, co- for other companies now, we're seeing that normalize um, at somewhere around 50%, even with mandatory workdays. So I do think that we're going to have a rebalancing. I think even at Salesforce, we have what I would call factory jobs, folks that do are required to be here, whether they're doing maybe very core work or even new folks who don't have maybe the tribal knowledge yet or need the mentorship or folks coming in from college um, who benefit from being in the office. Um, But we're never going back to how it was. We all know that. I'm sure a lot of you actually are at home right now. And before this, even maybe your companies, especially the banks, especially the New York banks and some of those New York bank leaders who have made impassioned pleas for return to work. But even though many of you who belong to some of those banks, I bet you're not at those offices right now. And I think we are in a new world, and uh, we all realize that. And um, But I think that we're finding a new way forward, and there will be more in office, and there will be, but we'll maintain the flexibility to be at home. And I will call out one more thing, which is probably one of the most successful things we've done is come up with new ways to work. And you've probably been down to the Salesforce ranch, and we'll have about 10,000 of our employees go through that this year. And training and collaboration sessions, and we'll find other new ways to work. And that's also one of the reasons why we acquired Slack, and I think why we've seen such great growth in Slack, why Slack channels are so important, why you saw the tremendous new multimedia environment in Slack. And we have quite a few other surprises coming in regards to the integration between Slack and Customer 360 and line of business capabilities and other areas regarding systems of record involving Slack. And all of that's because we're in a new way to work and we're going to need new tools. So that's how I look at it. But I, I don't agree with this new way to work messaging. Yeah, but so if we have that new way to work, then why do we need to bring people back into the office? It's I just feel like uh, the messaging is not consistent here. Um, I, th- I think people need need to be back in the office, to be honest. I, I think, I think a there's, lot, a, there's well, a... He made a lot of good points, actually. He did. I mean, and it's those, those people that I think are in the most need of having people in the office. Um, sure, you can you can have all your interns and all your new hires come into the office but if you don't have your more experienced people there as well to mentor them it's not going to work yeah but then that's that's the where the rub is here though because the people who are more mature in their career um who don't need that high touch environment for their for their career development Mm -hmm. um you're really asking them 
to do something they don't want to do. Whereas right. the people who are at, right out of college or need um, more help for whatever reason or would benefit more from in person, like they're, they're the ones who probably would be willing to go in the office. But you're, but you're, you're going to have to ask all the other people who doesn't make sense for them. They're way more mature in their career. They don't need that. It's not going to make them more productive. They are probably also the ones that are more likely to have like family obligations at home and different stuff that, you know, and the commute probably sucks because where you have your towers are super expensive to live. So I got to live, mm-hmm. you know, an hour and a half drive away so I can afford to, you know, have a home. Yeah. That, that's so, one of my points as well is the location of these towers. So, so like he said, you know, Salesforce went, what, what did they say? They were 20% or he said something like during the pandemic dropped down to 20% office in office, something like that. And he's seeing companies normalize around 50% now. So he's kind of hinting that like, oh, he'd kind of like Salesforce to be at 50%. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is, how do you, what, which 50%, how do you draw that line equitably? Right. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, what's going to be tough. And there's, a, there's another side to this as well. And I agree that it's going to be tough and finding that demographic is going to be tough. But I think the other thing is that um, there's a whole new generation of, no, that's not the point I want to make. The point I want to make is when he says a new way to work, that bothers me because I think what that means is finding a way to support these kind of more remote workers. And I think it's going to lead to more kind of specialized, smaller activities that these remote workers are going to have to to perform, um, which I think is going to be a larger workforce doing much less. So a lot less efficiency, in my opinion, I think is what that new way to work is is trending towards in my opinion less efficiency yes what explain that if you have a lot of remote if you have a lot of remote work and there's not going to be a lot of collaboration between groups of people then the best you can do at least in my opinion again i could be completely wrong on this is to focus people's activities to something that's very specific and very simple Mm. so your job maybe used to be corporate pr communications and now you're just you're the twitter guy you're the email guy, you're this guy, you know, that type of situation. That's a bad example, but I'm just trying to say how you might have to split these roles that used to mean various things into very specific activities and tasks so that they, A, have gain efficiency in that one task, and there's not a lot of cross-training involved. I mean, there's not a lot of cross-collaboration because there's no forum for that. Yeah, I see the point you're making. I just, I think it's a little bit of a false premise. I really don't think that, but I it mean, might be. It, it, I'm sure it's to a degree. I just don't think it's, is near as I don't think it's to the degree that like you're kind of making a sound. I, I agree, but the the conspiracy cynical side of me, when Benioff speaks of these platitudes, these these you know fourth industrial revolution moonshots, new way to work, they usually have this tinge of of just impracticability in in their messaging and what they think the future should look like. Yeah. And to me, projecting that imp- impracticability to this concept of new way to work. Um, that's how I rationalize it in my head, right or wrong. But I agree. It's, it's, it's a very cynical way of looking at it. You hear that? Yeah, I heard that. Oh. Yeah. I hope it's not, but I just, you know, it's, it's hard for me to understand how you're going to get well-rounded individuals who can multitask in a remote way without collaboration, effective collaboration. I mean, Slack but, is- But in the same breath, he tells you about how- all the amazing stuff they've added to Slack, the mul- the multimedia, the collaboration, the sharing. It's like, but you're telling me <laughs> I I couldn't well, I know? couldn't get a, a, a Salesforce bot to work on on Slack as as a bot without 
writing a bunch of extra code. Yeah. That's something that should be like a turnkey thing. Talk about integration. I'm, I'm just using his his points against him because I, I do think that for, you know, knowledge workers where we, we literally don't have to be near the server room anymore. Like, you know, we're, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking. But from that's never IT, been the case. IT perspective. Oh, no, but I hang know. on. But uh, the tools have gotten so much better. I mean, again, I'll, I'll use Benioff's points against him. I mean, just Slack itself, but also the stuff the stuff they've added to Slack and the stuff they're going to keep adding that he was teasing there. I don't know if he mentioned forward-looking statements or not, but he probably should have. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's getting to the point that, like, the the benefits of work from home and versus the negatives from working home, I mean, that those lines crossed a long time ago. And meaning that I feel like the benefits for lots of types of workers outweigh the negatives. And now they're diverging. Like the negatives are going down and down and down and the benefits kind of are going up. I agree. Um, but I do want to play a little bit of devil's advocate because I have noticed a trend in rejection of zoom. In fact, zoom's trajectory has kind of gone down a bit because just people just don't want to use it anymore. They want to, they don't want to sit on these calls. They don't want to be a little head on a, on a screen somewhere, it's just not working. They don't want to do it. And, and yeah, we can keep adding more stuff to this technology and to improve, quote-unquote, improve collaboration. But we as social, biological human beings, are we wired to, to function that way? No, but let me ask you this. Don't you think that's just the modern version of when 20 years ago when you were – had where you're called in, in, uh, into meetings and sitting in you know three different meetings every day that you really didn't need to be in and it was dumb, but your boss wanted you there. Is that are we not just is that really Zoom's fault or is that just kind of just typical age old bad management practices? Yeah, it's a fair point. Because I'm I'm pretty picky. Like I, I there's a meeting that I any every meeting request I'm get I, I just you know I will if I don't if it's not clear to me I will ask okay what value what value am I going to add on this meeting why am I on this meeting yeah and if I get a good answer then I'm fine you know that's that's fine I don't mind but if you don't if you don't have that filter then you're going to be not a productive person especially if there's no the people that are bringing you into meetings if there's no cost to them to bring you into those meetings yeah. And I think just a good management means that you, it's, it's you, you reinforce the right culture around that. Well, I think, I think even Benioff understands the importance of having people together. Otherwise, why have the Salesforce ranch if not no, just to entertain high level people? And, but, and there's been so many times, like I would say like this, this year we're just, you know, I get, as a company, like when we have been able to get together with clients and stuff, it's just, it's been kind of refreshing. It's like, yeah, oh, this is this is actually pretty nice. I mean, you can just you can just you get a different level of like intimacy when and and well, I think int- human intimacy con- and comfort and, and just think. like that human connection yeah. that you're just never really going to get over over Zoom calls. It's just not going to be the same. And that's that is what it is. But on a day in day out basis, like, do does John need to come into the office every week to get his job done? I mean, it just. That that would present. I'll just pick on you. I mean, that would present more problems for you than it would than value it would create. Just the the cost of the the, the commute time, the getting ready, the you know not being able to pop out and pick up your son or you know or whatever when 
you know, all those things that it, the ways that it makes your life better that, that, you know, I think in the end makes you probably a better worker, you know, you're happier, you're living, leading a more efficient life. I mean, what, what sense does it make to make John come in even, even three days a week? I mean, a lot of companies are doing this, like, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday or Tuesday through Thursday, people have to come in. I don't know. I think there needs to be, instead of a blanket, just dumb policy, like it needs to be on a like kind of a person-by-person basis and maybe a team-by-team basis. Like, hey, our team, let's plan on, as, as a team, we come in on, on Tuesdays or, you know, pick a day that, you know, you do get that. But it should be strategic and, and intentional and deliberate, not just, no, oh, let's just all, let's just make sure you're, just make sure you're in three days a week. Is my team going to be in? Guys, you well, hear so much of that. People, you know, people that because some people like just want to, they need to get out of their house, so they go into the office. You hear a lot of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. People that are kind of electing to go in, but it's so common to hear them say, "But yeah, my team's not even here. I'm just by myself." Well, I think, I think, I think you're right, but I think you're right, not in the wrong way, but for a different reason. Um, I did have to go in three days a week <laughs> in a previous life. Actually, right before I joined you, I'm driving to Dallas three days a week. And it wasn't the time we spent sitting in the office that was valuable Um, because at that point, we're each trying to get our stuff done. You know, my boss was trying to get his stuff done. I was trying to get my stuff done. Our salesperson was trying to get her stuff done. But what was nice was at lunch because we'd all go to lunch and we'd sit at lunch and we'd just talk. And a lot of times it would be work-related stuff. I mean, but we would just talk and we would kind of just brainstorm on things or talk about different things that we could be doing or things that are working, things that are not. And I thought that was more valuable. So maybe it's not so much that you have to be in the office, but maybe it's that you're creating a location for people to kind of come in and just talk. Yeah. Um, versus this prescriptive three days a week, sit at your desk. I want yeah. to see you at your desk. Right. That's, that's, I think it kind of goes right along with us saying about it. it should be like deliberative. Deliberate, mm-hmm. deliberate. Is deliberative a word? Well, I think um, we're we're at this point in time that I think it probably needs to be, like you said, deliberate, but maybe casual, for lack of a better word. Maybe not come into the office and do your job three days a week, or come to the office, or maybe not even the office. Maybe we're meeting here. We're gonna just get together. We'll we'll talk about a few project things, and then we'll just kind of split up for for a bit and see how it goes. Yeah, you know. No, that's, I think that's, I think that's fine. It's just like the whole, like, we need to see three badge scans a week from you. That, that kind of policy yeah. is just like, but in the, in the, I think the problem that that kind of policy creates also for a company is, um, it's just going to make it harder to recruit. If you, if, you know, if, if you're telling your potential labor pool that if you, you know, in order to work here, you have to scan your badge three, three days a week for no good reason, then you're going to, you're just going to lose a lot of people. Yeah, that's the other side of this. Is and I didn't want to make this point, but I think the other side of it is the the new generation that's coming into the workforce is what are their expectations of work? Because that that's completely changed from what I understand. Their concept of what work is, and and their office experience or their lack of an office experience is is going to be completely different from what we know as normal. So yeah. I'm curious to see how that pans out. <laughs> it's it's weird. Just like I do, I mean I feel like as you know I have I have. You know, two two boys, uh, you know, kind of elementary, middle school age, and it's just like how we're. It's such a challenging time to raise kids right now. I feel like, and maybe every generation says that. I don't know. Um, 
I'm sure every generation does say that, but this I mean, is, just the internet and devices yeah. and, and all the stuff that's available on the internet. Um, and, and the whole rethinking of like, are, do half these people that go to college, do they actually need to go to college or do they need to go to a current technical path and learn to code? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and funny, even just that, like I've always kind of, I mean, my kids are kind of technical and I always kind of see them as going down, like maybe some kind of coding or engineering path. But you know, now you can just say, um, Hey, write me this, write me a trigger that d- does X, Y, Z. And it spits out the, all the code for you right there. Have you seen those? Yes. This, I have a pet peeve with that. That's, that's you know fine. Why? I'm just saying like, cause they're writing code in, in the trigger. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, when you see stuff like that, and this is just the beginning, like how could you possibly tell someone to go learn to code? How's that possibly even a good idea? Unless they're just an absolute computer science genius. That's going to be creating the next, you know, AI technology or something. It's just, I don't know how we got on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get it. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to subscribe to the idea that my job is re- going to be replaced by a bot just yet. It's just they're going to be real different, and I just don't know how many of these kind of jobs there will be. There will be. They will be there. They will, but yeah, they'll be they'll be highly specialized. I think. I think it might take a form of the, um, of the, gaming industry. Um, there's only a handful of programmers out there that are capable, or inexperienced enough to write a game engine. Everyone else is using tooling or everyone else is either. And the tiers follow that. You know, you have the, the main guys that are writing the core of the engine. You have another group that's writing tooling. And then you have the users, which are pretty much primarily using drag and drop interfaces yeah. for this stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's likely probably where we're going in general as an entire industry is something that, that they've, been, they've already kind of adopted. And that's probably where we'll end up going. I'm, I'm actually glad we kind of stumbled onto this topic because <clears throat> it reminded me there's something I wanted to uh, read you which is a story about how ai destroyed the field of translation like language translation years ago all right you ready Mm -hmm. it's not that long i spent decades of my life learning foreign languages only to see the translation industry destroyed by ai the inferiority of the machine translations a few years back did not stop the destruction of the industry (coughs) the machine translation cost nothing And so the price for all translation came crashing down because the bottom feeders used machine translation. I found myself paid half price to, quote, just edit as if that was less work, a translation done by machine, which was basically unintelligible, so that I had to go back to the original and translate it myself, again, for half price. Most clients, the bottom of the pyramid that kept the industry going, did not care about the quality of the translation. If we expect clients... Prizing human-made products will save industries. We are all being very delusional. The vast majority of clients will go for the process that costs less. Yeah, and I, I mean, even taking AI out for a second, I mean, I think we've already seen that. Like, just look at your typical pop into any random Salesforce org and look at the quality of code that's in there. Yeah, it's not good. No, it's not good. Um. So we've already gotten accustomed to doing business in a in a low quality way. And well, AI, it's, it's always been kind of my, I don't know, peeve. But the reality is nobody cares. No, do you think they're going to care when they're when they say that they want a trigger that does X Y Z and it and it 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 works, but maybe it's not quite as good as a, a human crafted trigger? Do you think anyone's going to care? Right. 
Mine's not going to care that it didn't use TDTM. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they don't know. They don't know why they should care. They here's because the answer is they should care actually, and it's it's always less expensive in the end to do the thing the right way the first time. I feel like everyone has forgotten that lesson. Didn't you learn that lesson at a young age? Like, didn't you? Wasn't that beating your head? You know, it's like, uh, but now we we don't think that way anymore. It's just like move fast and break shit or whatever. You know. Well, I, th- I think, and maybe this is a bad analogy, but maybe maybe what we're seeing in the in the technology space is the is a is a is it following more of the retail model? You know, quality sets the price, and you buy based on what you can afford. So you might buy a cheap little Honda or something. But once you get to a certain point and a certain level, you want more quality, you might buy an Audi. You know, maybe that's what we're trying to, I mean, maybe that's always been the case, but it just seems like, you know, that, that a certain car is not that great, but that's all you can afford. And that's what you get. Yeah. I don't know if that's making sense. It does a little bit, but this person made a good point, which was that even though in the, in the beginning, like, let's say only half of companies were willing to use the the computer translations. Mm Mm-hmm. Because that took out half of the market, now you have the same number of the same amount of quality labor chasing half as much of the work. So the pay dropped in half because again, you know, supply and demand and work oh, and that right. sets prices, right? Yeah. <clears throat> so it just destroys everything. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't thinking about that aspect of it. Anyway, but that's that's happened since since forever. I know, I know. It just always when you're in the middle of it, it seems scary. Well, it is scary because it did happen and people did lose their jobs yeah. and yeah. they either had to retire early or find something else to do. Well, it started with, I mean, we're, we're old enough that when, when we saw the kind of the offshoring boom start yeah, and that was all about low, cheap, low quality and cheap. Yeah. Um, and although it, you know, so many famous examples of big companies that had to, that just sent them reeling um, and had to pull a lot of stuff back. Um. It wasn't after tons of damage was done. But they didn't care. They didn't care. They got it for cheap. Or at least on paper, they got it for cheap. Yeah, it did damage their... It did... Yeah. In that case, it, it did It did a lot of damage, though, to reputation, well, it to, did, it to, did, to brand loyalty and all that kind of stuff. It, it, did a, it, did, it did damage across the entire spectrum because not only did it do damage in that the company did not get what they needed to and they spent a lot of extra money that they probably wouldn't have spent it if they had some quality developers but those developers who didn't have a job anymore because it was outsourced are no longer there what about the fact that we're all okay with um you know just cheaper quality crap but it's cheaper so we're okay with all this you know everything's made like in china now or some you know and, and it's clearly lower quality but, i'm not okay with it okay i mean i try my best to try to buy quality as much as I can. But there there is there is there is economics involved. Yep. Sometimes I do buy cheap because I know I'm gonna replace it. Yeah. Sometimes cheap isn't bad. No, I that, have a cheap no. one hundred dollar Weber that I've had for years. Yeah. You know for for a trend, I was buying a new gas grill like every year because the thing would kept rotting out and rusting right. out. But I've had this Weber for forever. That's a really good point. I mean sometimes the cheap crappy thing is fine. You just needed to get you from point A to point B. Yeah. Um just, I think that I think that's the thing that I struggle with, or that just on a daily basis is frustrating, is that people are in a position that they need to understand how to make those strategic decisions, and they they are not equipped to do so. And so you see people making bad decisions 
every day on what, you know, what, what, in, what type of investment does need to be made? Is this a cheap short-term thing or is it something that's going to really cost us big time if we don't do it right? And people are just, well, not no, one, a, no one wants to be responsible for that decision. No, there's, they're, but they're, I'm saying they, they, they are not equipped with the right knowledge and information to make that decision. Yeah. But they're making that decision because that's the position they're in. Yeah, I get it. And there's, I mean, there's just so much um, misinformation. That's the problem also. I mean, and I'm, you know, this is not just Salesforce. I mean, just, this is what vendors do. This is what companies do. I mean. It's what marketing does. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's so much misinformation. And it's it's not a surprise that people don't know how to make good decisions. They're not equipped to make good decisions. Well, the decision making also comes with maturity. I mean, I can tell you when I was buying stuff as when I was younger, I wouldn't have bought when I was older and I had some knowledge and some experience of what I want or even how to research something or where to go to research something to, to get some reviews or to look at things. Um, so I think, I think some of that's just maturity of the individual, their experience of that. Yeah. But I get the point. I mean, do you think, I mean, it seems like a lot of coding is going to be, it's going to be, you have the machine generate the code for it. You kind of just write a sentence or two telling it you what you want. <clears throat> and then you just kind of edit what it gives you and fix a few things here and there. And then you're good to go. No, I see it more going to the drag and drop tooling interface. Mm. I guess I'm thinking for it's, coding that has to be coding still, but. Well, I think, I, I think the gaming industry is a perfect example. If you look at the Unreal or even the Unity platforms, you basically get this drag-and-drop interface where you can kind of kit together these different modules. Um, but there's also a scripting layer on top of it. Um, and so you is tr- it Lua? Uh, is it in Lua? I feel like that's always the scripting uh, language for, for games in no, the gaming for industry. For Unity, it's, um, I think it's .NET, C-sharp. And for um, Unreal, it's C-sharp. Right, so I mean, it's C- Is it a scripting? I think it's C. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think Lua or Luna, that's Roblox. Lua. Lua. Oh, does it use Roblox? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that works the same way. They have an IDE that you you have drag and drop interface, then you can script things. Yeah. Uh, I'm not, I'm not well versed in all this. So if I'm saying things wrong, let me know. But my understanding is those are the languages that it's using for scripting. And and I say scripting, but you're basically writing these little class files or these modules that it knows how to ingest and run that script. Yeah. Um, But essentially it's just visual programming. (coughs) You, if you have a function that's not available, you code it. It becomes available to your to your um, interface as a node that you can interact with. You have your inputs and your outputs, and you kit it all together. And there's your there's your scene, there's your execution, there's your algorithm. Um, and I mean, I, that's what I see. That's what I see this going to more yeah. and more. Yeah. Is you know we'll have flow. Mm-hmm. We'll we'll be able to hop over into Apex for the scripting to create a new module for flow to ingest and everything. Everything's just drag and droppy. That's not to mean there's not going to be developers working on the core platform or, you know, developers who are now in that uh, tooling tier, which is basically building things to be consumed by the drag and drop UI. Yeah. And then everyone else is a consumer. Yep. I just feel like it's like the vast middle swath of developers that will have to find some other way to. Yeah. Our job's going to change. Yeah. Yeah. Our industry is going to change quite a bit. Yeah. Fun times, John. So. <laughs> um, there's one other thing in the news that that was a big deal. So Viva is in there. They just had their public company just had their their financial uh, report, and on their 
I guess they said that as part of the report that they are moving off of Salesforce. So their whole product is built on Salesforce, and they're moving off of it. And they I ex- saw that headline, but I don't know what Viva does. Um, Las Vegas, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, Vegas <laughs> is moving off the platform. V- no, Viva, Las Vegas, get it? I get it. It was like a homophone, homonym joke. I get it. Um, yeah, I don't know what Viva does. Uh, some kind of some kind of selling and marketing stuff. Let's see. They're the foundation for digital oh, excellence. They're, they're, okay, <laughs> that means they're for they have a, a, a solution for pharmaceutical and life sciences industry applications. Okay, <clears throat> Pleasanton, interesting. That's where um, else isn't Pleasanton? PeopleSoft? Uh, no, uh, Workday. Hmm. I don't. I don't read too much into it. I mean, I think. I think once a company has built a certain business of a certain size on the platform, it makes more sense for them to own the entire platform versus sitting on top of Salesforce. So the thing that the thing that struck me about that was not that they said they were. It was going to. You know, they, the net result was they were going to. It was going to increase their margins, right? Um, but more so that they're actually able to re-platform their application. That's a lot of work. They've probably already been doing it piecemeal over time. I hope just so. got to a point of critical mass that they can announce it. Because that's something you don't want to announce before you're absolutely sure you can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Well, that's the way you should do it. But I've seen instances of that not being the case, and it really screwed things over. So, Yep. Well, John, we've gone pretty long. Anything yeah. else that you've got uh, – Nope, I got a hard stop. It's coming up, so okay, we'll wrap it up. All righty. Well, uh, I still need you to help me with my printer so I can get these stickers out. Or you know what? Take it home. You need to take it home with you. Yeah, I'll take it home. Okay. See if you can figure it out. But uh, yeah, other than that, um, dear listener, call me the printer whisperer. Please uh, join our Slack if you haven't already. Good day or www.gooddayserpodcast.com. Click on community. Um, shoot us an email info at gooddayserpodcast.com where you can request stickers if you send us your shipping address physical address and then when John gets this printer working we will print out labels and send the, get these stickers sent out I see how you shifted the responsibility yeah I do it's, it's your problem now I'm good at that <laughs> <clears throat> um, but you can also send us uh, questions for the show or feedback um what else, John? Oh, you think uh, we'll get sh- one more in before the holiday? Shout out. Um, I, I would hope so, maybe. Okay. I'm not going anywhere, are you? No. Shout out to Jody Miner. She uh, gave us a shout out the other day on Twitter. Nice. Because we were like one of her top podcasts she listens to. So always nice to hear that kind of stuff. It is. You know, sometimes I'm, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, people listen to us. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, John. What else? That's it. What do you have for the good day, sir, army? You said it all. Any uh, parting words of wisdom, encouragement? You're awesome. You are awesome. So be awesome. And to that, I say good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.